LARP Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Eric Newman and Medea Ocher. And Medea, I want to congratulate you on being named the new editor-in-chief of LARB. Thanks, Kate. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm so happy to be back. This is really fun news. I'm excited about it. I'm still in New York and I'll be here for another couple of weeks, but then I'll be back in LA and I just, I can't wait to rejoin my old, my old, old person family like you guys, two oldies. (laughs) (laughs) Old as in years, not not age, of course. Old as in my old, all my old friends. Yeah, as in years. We can't wait to have you back in the city and and back in the fold at the very top. And I, I hope I'm doing okay. I mean, this is going to need some work. We're going to have to talk about it after the recording. Um. <laughs> Don't fire me on air. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. No, I'm very excited. And I can't wait to see what we can all do together. Yes, here, here. Yes, it's wonderful, wonderful news. And this week, you weren't on this interview, Dea, but Eric and I spoke with the writer Adam Schatz about his new book, The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Yeah, how'd it go? This was a really great interview, and it's also a fascinating book. You know, like, I think Medea, because listeners may or may not know that Medea and I were in grad school together, so I don't know if you ever read Fanon's work, but I ended up throughout grad school like reading a bunch of Fanon's books, but I never actually knew anything about Fanon's biography. So understanding where he came from, and also Schatz does a really great job throughout this entire book of kind of connecting both Franz Fanon's personal, you know, biographical life with how his thought developed. And in particular, I was fascinated by the ways in which this book documents the transition in Fanon's thought between black skin, white masks, and the wretched of the earth. And also just like all these other connections that it has to kind of contemporary, then contemporary trends in psychiatric care, what was going on, obviously, with his involvement in the war in Algiers. So just really, really fascinating story. Yeah, I have only really, I read... I have read Fanon, but not so much. I read it both in grad school and, and undergrad. But I was always also really struck mm. by him as like a stylist. I, I know that's not that's not what he's known for necessarily, but he's also a really beautiful writer. Like I, I think like the quality of his thought and the quality of his actual writing style are really unmatched. That's another thing that Adam Schatz gets into in this book, which is the influence of Aimé Césaire and uh, Leopold Senghor, not only obviously on Fanon's thought, but also particularly Césaire on like Fanon's style. And I think you're absolutely right. Normally when you're reading theorists, it tends to be quite dry. And yeah. apologies to theorists out there. I'm sure there's going to be a million people that are like, well, that's not actually true. I don't think that's but always in my experience, true. But it's not always true. It's true, but it's a rare, it's a rare theorist that has actually a quite literary and pleasurable style and distinctive, which like Fanon definitely has. And again, actually in this book, we learned that he started off writing plays. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought this was fascinating and especially, you know, his work as a kind of a revolutionary psychologist and the revolutionary treatment of people and the kind of looking at their lives and the way they're placed in society and then how that would then present itself in the kind of mindset and afflictions they had, I thought was really like something that people almost are still talking about today, almost still discovering today. So his yes. his pinpointing that at the time, it made me really excited to read more about his clinical methods and you know, just everything. Yeah, the, this book really holds him up as a, a figure who is still worth deeper investigation. 
I think it also, the last thing I would add that I just found really generative about this book is that it kind of gives us an opportunity to revisit Fanon from a kind of refreshed perspective. Because I think that Fanon's work, and we talk about this in the interview, it has been kind of taken up in all kinds of different ways because it is so evocative and provocative. And so there's a kind of way that Fanon's work has been taken up in activist circles, which sometimes, as kind of Schatz points out, pulls away from like the specificity of Fanon's writing and thought. So it's a great opportunity to kind of go back to somebody that maybe we think we know and to be maybe a little like pejorative that we might know through like internet memes, maybe more than reading like the actual text. So that was another thing that I found incredibly useful about this book. Yeah. And one, okay, one last thing to add is that we do also have a review of the book up on the site right now. It's by Anthony Alessandrini. It's called Ambivalent Phenonism. So if listeners want to just learn a little bit more, they can check it out on the website at lareadbooks.org. Nice. I'm going to go read that right now. All right. See you there. (laughs) Great. But first, let's get to that interview. Let's do it. We're excited to be speaking with the writer and critic Adam Schatz today. Adam Schatz is the author of Prophets Outcast, a century of dissident Jewish writing about Zionism and Israel, as well as writers and missionaries, essays on the radical imagination. The U.S. editor of the London Review of Books, he is also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, and the New Yorker, among other publications. He teaches at Bard College. He joins us to speak about his latest book, The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. The book is both a biography of Fanon, one of the most important thinkers on race and colonialism of the last century, as well as an intellectual history that looks closely at his most seminal texts. Schatz uncovers the circumstances that led to the writing of books such as Black Skin, White Mass, and The Wretched of the Earth by following Fanon from his birth in Martinique, then a French colony, to his time serving in World War II, his studies in Lyon, his innovative work as a psychiatrist in France and Algeria, as well as his pivotal decision to join in the fight for Algerian independence and become a part of the FLN. Though he died at only 36 in 1961, Schatz also uncovers the many afterlives of Fanon's work, from his embrace by the Black Panthers and his influence on filmmakers such as Claude Lanzmann and Ousmane Semben, to echoes of his thought in the continued struggle for Black liberation today. Thank you so much, Adam, for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, I'm wondering if we can start literally at the beginning of the story. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about Fanon's experience growing up in Martinique and then moving to France as he's continuing his studies. It seems that that experience is so central to kind of defining the tensions both between the colonized and the colonizer, which is a similar structure, the Outremer and like the metropole that defines so much of his political writing and thinking also within psychiatry, but also in political theory. So can you talk just a little bit about that? Fanon was born in um, in Martinique. He grew up in the capital of Martinique in Fort-de-France. He was raised in a, a fairly affluent, middle-class, professional family. And he had the experience, like, uh, like many Antillians or you know, French West Indians, of his generation, of growing up with this this idée fixe that he wasn't really black. He was really, he was a French person. Uh, He was a white French person apart apart from his complexion. The first words that he learned in French, the first words he, he learned to write were, je suis français, I'm French. He was going to schools where he was told that his ancestors were the Gauls, when they obviously were not. He certainly didn't grow up with any notion that he had an ancestral connection to Africa, you know, where his people originally came from as slaves. And these ideas were just were prevalent in the culture of the so-called vieille colonie, the old colonies of Martinique, Guadeloupe, uh, Réunion. And they weren't contested by his parents, for that matter. His parents were 
deep believers in French republicanism. They were they were on the left. They were socialists, but they had a they worshipped the French Republic as the country that had eliminated slavery. Now the fact is abolition really hadn't taken place until 1848. I mean, slavery was abolished during the French Revolution, but then it was reinstated. And when abolition came in 1848, its architect was a man named Victor Schelcher. He was a leading abolitionist figure and the governor of the Vieille Colonie. And his image was ubiquitous in Martinique. The library was named after him. There was a huge statue of Victor Schelcher. So if you were a young Black West Indian, you might grow up with the idea at that time that slavery was a gift from the colonizer. And people internalized these ideas as well in, in popular culture and in the, uh, the magazines and, and books that they read. And so these ideas, I think, were first challenged for Fanon when he was a teenager and the Vichy regime came to power, the so-called Tom Robert. The Admiral Robert was a, a Vichy supporter who was ruling Martinique in the first years of, um, in the years just after 1940, 1940 to 43, when France fell to the Germans. And during that period, there were thousands of French soldiers who were stationed in Martinique. And it was at that time that Fanon had his first real rough experience of of racism. Racism was not absent. Colored consciousness was actually quite prevalent in Martinique. There was a, an intricate pigmentocracy, as there was in all of these colonies. But still, the really brutal racism was somewhat obscured by the fact that the people who ran the administrative affairs of Martinique were the Creoles. There were Beques, the descendants of the white elite, of course. But there were few encounters between a family like Fanon's and the Beques. So Vichy is the shock for him. It also seems that the true awakening of his racial identity takes place when he leaves Martinique, that it's really during the war when he... I agree. I mean, that's absolutely true. I, I do think this was an initial shock for him, at least as he recounts it in Black Skin, White Mass. But of course, the the really kind of shattering experiences take place when he leaves the island. And he comes to understand that even in the free French forces, the forces that are that have been organized to fight Nazism, to fight fascism in Europe, there's a racial hierarchy. And oddly enough, he's not Black in that army. The so-called uh, tirailleurs Senegalais, the African riflemen are treated very differently. They wear different clothes. They're subject to various kinds of discrimination. They're often sent to the front lines earlier in battle. Fanon was considered an honorary Tubab, a, a European. But then, you know, they, Fanon and his fellow soldiers leave this training camp in Morocco, and he ends up in France. And after the war, where he has been wounded, where he's been given a croix de guerre. The croix de guerre was placed on his lapel by someone who would later emerge as a hardline supporter of Algérie Française, Raoul Salon. It's another story. But after he receives the croix de guerre, he finds that white women in France won't dance with him. And uh, he finds that he's seen as a black man. And when he returns to France just after the war as a medical student in Lyon, he has this, this terrible experience, which I think is kind of the primal scene in all of Fanon's work, where he's on a train. This is probably in Paris because there, there wasn't a metro system in, in Lyon at the time. And there's a little boy on the train with his mother, and the little boy points to Fanon and says, Maman, look, it's a negre, a negro. And Fanon is utterly startled and paralyzed and feels almost as if his body has been torn asunder. And this is the, as I said, this is the primal scene in Fanon's analysis of the formation of racial identity and of the psychological impact of racism in his first book, Black Skin, White Mask, which he publishes when he's 27 years old. He originally submitted this work as, a, as his doctoral dissertation, but 
it was rejected by the conservative psychiatrist who was overseeing his dissertation. And one of the things that's really interesting about black skin, white masks is that although it has this generalizing power that has lent itself to work on race and racism in so many contexts outside of France and outside of its overseas colonies, including the United States, of course, Fanon's own analysis is addressed specifically to the Antillean situation, to the West Indian situation. He's very explicit about that at the beginning of the book. This book is is about French West Indians. Now, of course, Fanon goes on to write about various other kinds of people who suffer from racial stigma. And I don't think the book would have nearly the power that it does if it were merely about French West Indians. But one of the points that he stresses throughout is that the formation of of a complex in the minds of Black West Indians is all the more intense upon contact with the metropole. He asks this question in Blacks and White Mass, why is it that a psychologically normal Black child goes to school in a white majority school and comes home with a neurosis? Why is it that a Black West Indian who studies in France returns psychologically traumatized in some way? I mean, perhaps filled with pride that he or she has made it in the metropole and comes home with an almost magical power, but at the same time returns with um, a divided sense of self. I mean, you could apply here the ideas of W.B. Du Bois, for example, on double consciousness. So yes, I mean, I do think that collision is really central to that first book. But that also feels like it's also the instantiation of Fanon's unique, not unique to him, but his unique to his identity, of a kind of psychosocial sensibility of being a permanent outsider. I mean, you write quite beautifully about how, you know, there's no community really that Fanon can kind of fold himself into easily, right? So he's Martiniquez, but he doesn't really feel necessarily a sodality with that community who kind of refuses. There's both his animosity towards that community after reading the stories of the Haitian Revolution for being like, well, why couldn't we have done that here? Is it animosity or is it almost a kind of shame? I would think it's more shame than animosity. Shame is more correct. Yeah, I think it is shame. And also, you know, as I say in the book, that um, this shame also reflects a lack of awareness of the tradition of Martinique. There actually had been slave revolts in Martinique, none as successful as Toussaint Louverture's in Haiti, but the Martinicans were not passive in the face of their oppressors. I mean, what's peculiar about Fanon that's specific to his personality is that he actually seeks out situations in which he's the outsider. It's not simply that he's destined to be the outsider. I mean, when he's in France, he had the opportunity to study in Paris. He could have studied in Paris. And if he'd studied in Paris, he would have found himself in close proximity to a West Indian community and also to an African community. He says, I would like to go somewhere that is milkier. In other words, he wanted to go to a place that was whiter where he would be forced to kind of fight. I mean, he was seeking a challenge of sorts. And he, he certainly went to the right place because Lyon was a city with very few Black people and then also a small population of North African laborers who were mostly men living on their own and sending home remissions to their families. And those men become a subject of real concern and also psychiatric interest to Fanon. It reminds me about what you read about Tosqueus, who Fanon meets at the Saint Alban clinic, who says, you know, that the psychiatrist needs to be an outsider, basically, who that there's something of the foreign about him. And Tosqueus didn't lose, for instance, you mentioned his very thick Catalan accent. He thought it was an attribute. If this position of being outside helps perhaps the analyst see more clearly the society that he's analyzing. That was Tosqueyes' view, and yet he made an exception in the case of Fanon and kind of chided him for emphasizing race. And, you know, Fanon had reason to be pretty annoyed with Tosqueyes because Tosqueyes was very, you know, made no secret of the fact that he spoke with an accent and, and kind of prided himself on his outsiderdom. 
why it should apply to Tosquelles but not to Fanon, hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> right. But do you think that that position of Fanon somehow outside wherever he was, you know, seeing himself as a part helped him in his work as a psychiatrist, if that was, and even his rec, him recognizing, for instance, when he was in Lyon, the North African syndrome as being troubling, as being deeper than just these, you know, lazy, malingering Algerians saying that something was wrong when it wasn't. Is that what gave him the insight? Is that what catapulted him into his thought? No, I think it's a good question. And Fanon certainly styled himself to some degree, as in Tosquelles' words, an ambassador of his singularity. I think Fanon had a very strong and even vain sense of himself, you know, of the way that he appeared in a room, of his presence, of his physical presence. I mean, he was a person of some considerable elegance, in fact. I'm wary of saying that Fanon's position as an outsider, gave him insight. I think what gave him insight was the power of his mind. But I think it certainly created situations in which he could observe things that might not have been as visible to others. And I think what's more, the fact that he was so different in some ways and couldn't be easily placed helped him to, to be almost a chameleon in certain situations. He was able to, or at least he tried to assimilate into various contexts where he was not, quote unquote, a native. So, you know, Fanon is raised as a Frenchman. And even though he has these terrible experiences, these experiences in public, on the train, for example, where he's not treated as just another Frenchman, where his, his anonymity is violated and he's seen as a black man, as someone apart. This is a man who is steeped in French literature and culture as much as any other French person and arguably more. When he's in Algeria, there are situations where he is mistaken for an Algerian. There are people on the street who assume that he's Algerian because Fanon had a, arguably had a certain Arab look. There's a story that Fanon tells where he's in his car smoking at the beginning of the Algerian independence struggle, and a young man came by him and said, you know, you really shouldn't be smoking. Now, this man would not have said that to a European, but he would say that to an Algerian because at the time there was a strike, there was a ban on the consumption of French cigarettes. So I think his, his looks, his appearance, and his foreign background, as it were, allowed him to insinuate himself into certain situations and to become part of projects that weren't quote-unquote his own. I feel like we've rushed into Fanon and I, we haven't gotten to ask you what drew you to write about him, which I was very curious about as I read this book, because I imagined that this would have been a considerable study and taken many years to write. And I wanted to know where you started in terms of how long you had been reading Fanon, and just what about him made you as a person want to write a biography? Well, you know, it's funny that you asked uh, the question after our last exchange about being an outsider, because there were so, that was certainly one aspect of Fanon's personality that always intrigued me. And my relationship, as it were, to Fanon began when I was a teenager. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm not Martinican, I'm not French, I'm not Algerian, I have no biographical connection to this subject. But, I, you know, I grew up in a left liberal home, and my, our library downstairs was my father's library, included copies of Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks and The Wretched of the Earth in their original Grove Press editions. And these were books that were, I think, on the same shelf as books like Isaac Deutscher's Non-Jewish Jew, which was a, another book that had a big influence on me when I was young. Isaac Deutscher is a, you know, was a great Marxist, a Jewish intellectual who was a biographer of Leon Trotsky and also of Stalin, and also Malcolm X's autobiography. And although Fanon was not a, a Black nationalist, there are certainly some parallels in their lives and in their understanding of Black consciousness. So I saw those books when I was probably 15 or 16. And 
I do remember being quite struck by the image of Fanon on the jacket. He was rather nattily dressed and, uh, and looked very serious, even grave. And the description of him on the jacket reported that uh, he was a West Indian doctor who worked as a psychiatrist in Algeria and joined the Algerian revolution. And that, that seemed it was quite fascinating. Why would a, a West Indian end up thousands of miles away joining you know, a Muslim-led struggle for independence from French colonialism? The story just had a fascination for me. And I already had a connection to France because I was, uh, as a young, I can't even say as a young man, as a boy, I had uh, aspired to be a French chef and, you know, had worked in kitchens in France. I, I wrote about this in a memoir in The New Yorker in 2019. And it was at that time that I first learned about the colonization of Algeria. It was at that time that I first learned about anti-Algerian and anti-Muslim prejudice in France. So when I was in college, I found myself reading Fanon in a French literature course and also meeting students from North Africa, from Algeria, from Tunisia, from Morocco. This also coincided, broadly speaking, with my coming to consciousness around the First Intifada, which broke out in 1987. And there seemed to me to be parallels between the Palestinian struggle for independence against the Israeli occupation and the Algerian struggle for independence against France. And so that set me on a, I guess, a journey that continued. And in 2001, I reviewed David Macy's biography of Fanon for the New York Times. And it was around this time that I started doing writing on Algeria. And I went to Algeria to report on the, the end of the Civil War. I'd already been writing about Algeria in the New York Review, particularly about the question of torture, the, the resurfacing of the memory of torture in France in the late 1990s. And Fanon was, in a way, part of these conversations because he had written so powerfully about what he called the, the mental disorders of colonial warfare. In fact, decades before anyone in French medicine was willing to admit that this war, which they didn't call a war until 1999, had resulted in post-traumatic stress syndrome. So the decision to write the biography came in 2017, I suppose. I'd just done a piece for the London Review of Books about his psychiatric writings, which had been collected by the scholars Robert Young and Jean Calfa. And after I published that piece, I felt that I had more to say. And this was also the time of the Trump presidency, or at least, I mean, I'm terrified to say, perhaps the first Trump presidency. And there was this absolutely ghastly resurgence of, of white nationalism and racism. You know, we were already having this discussion of the uh, proliferation of police killings. And there was a lot of conversation about the precariousness of, of black bodies and, um, you know, under white supremacy and so forth. And it just seemed to me that, that Fanon remained, you know, such a, an essential figure. And so Pankaj Mishra, uh, who's a close friend of mine, suggested that I perhaps pursue this as a book project. And uh, one thing led to another. In a way, actually, kind of returning to that, we're going to get to the revolution in, in Algeria soon, because that is like really the like the crux to, of a lot of Fanon's thought and what remains of his influence. But I want to return us actually to that St. Albans clinic and the influence of Dosqueyes and that work on Fanon's, not only his work as a psychiatrist, because they took a quite different approach, a very radical approach, actually, to clinical care, but also to his political thinking and philosophy. Well, Fanon, even before he arrived at uh, the Saint-Alban Clinic in the Lozère in southwestern France, was already drawn to anti-colonial politics. He had gone to some demonstrations in support of a, of a communist leader in the, in the Outre-mer who had been imprisoned. So there is a burgeoning political consciousness already, but he's not yet exactly making a direct connection between his emerging political consciousness and his practice as a psychiatrist. I agree with you that this, this really happens when he goes to Saint-Alban. Saint-Alban was an asylum that had something of a legend about it because during the Second World War, 
between 40 and 50,000 patients in these in France's asylums had died of hunger, undernourishment, and disease. It was called the soft extermination, l'extermination douce. And Saint-Alban was one of the few places where no one had died. And it was in large part thanks to radical psychiatrists like the director Paul Beauvais and also Lucien Bonafé. These were left-wing psychiatrists who had alternative ideas about therapy and who provided a, a sanctuary for the resistance and for figures like the poet Paul Éluard and uh, the historian of science, uh, Georges Canguillem, who published a very influential book called The Normal and the Pathological. Tosquelles had been the, the organizer of the psychiatric services of the Spanish Republic, more specifically of the PUM, the anarchist Trotskyist party that the communists in Spain ended up repressing. And he was forced to leave Spain, ended up in a camp of refugees in France uh, in 1939. And it was there that Paul Bolvay of uh, Saint-Alban discovered him and, and recruited him to come there. And so Fanon gets there in 1952, shortly after he publishes Black Skin, White Masks. He's already met Paul Bolvay, actually, in Lyon. Bolvay had a place there, and uh, Fanon's uh, friend, Nicole Guillet, who was a student at the University of Lyon, invited him to dinner. And when he's there, he begins to learn about Tosquelles' methods of psychiatry, these innovative forms of group therapy, the idea of a collectif soignant, a caring collective, where which is based on the idea, on a broadly speaking, kind of Marxist collectivist idea of how transference works. In typical psychoanalysis, transference works between the analyst and the analysant, between the psychiatrist and the patient. But in this idea of um, transference éclaté, or exploded transference, that was Tosquelles' term, transference applies to everyone in the asylum. So it applies to the concierge, it applies to all the staff members, and it applies to the patients. And so Fanon was very, is deeply marked by these ideas and also by the idea that to reintegrate people in an asylum into some sense of normal life, of joy, of pleasure, of vitality, you have to recreate some version of the life that they know outside, some kind of micro-society. And that's what he and, and uh, Tosquelles start to do at Saint-Alban. They write papers on it as well. I think you could argue, I mean, I do argue in this book that what Fanon does in Algeria, in Blida, at the uh, psychiatric hospital of Blida Joinville outside of Algiers, is to introduce Tosquelles' methods, to apply Tosquelles' methods to his patients, both European women and Muslim men. But he also realizes that he's going to have to apply those methods rather differently because it's a colonial context. It's not southwestern France. And these patients experience their lives very differently. Now, eventually, much later in the story, once Fanon gets to Tunisia, he starts to become actually more critical of social therapy or institutional therapy. That's the term for what Tosquelles practices. He starts to embrace the idea of a deinstitutionalized psychiatric practice based on a day clinic where patients are treated during the day and then go home as if it were a job. And I think that links him to figures like R.D. Lang, people in the anti-psychiatry movement. But he's a pretty loyal and faithful practitioner of um, institutional therapy for the entire time that he's in Algeria, which is late 1953 until late 1956. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Adam Schatz, author of The Rebels Clinic. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have EJ Co. on the line with us today. Her new book is called The Liberators. It's a novel, and EJ is here to give us a book recommendation. EJ, what book are you going to recommend? Oh, I just loved The Twilight Zone by Nona Fernandez, translated by Natasha Wimmer. Okay, tell me more. I've heard great things about that book. 
Oh, I, I hope you read it. You know, it's, it's one of those places that we were talking about going into the horror as a way to look at ourselves and find grace, find hope in light. I think, you know, Fernandez does a wonderful job of that going into something that, that is, you know, historically difficult to look at and says, you know, how do I give the testimony of not just the survivor, the perpetrator, which she does. It's a testimony of the perpetrator. And it's at times difficult to read, but I know that by the end, we understand why it's important to get all parts of the story, that it's a testimony that belongs to all of us. Can you quickly tell us what the book is about? It's about the dictatorship in Chile in 1984. And it's about when a secret police walks into the office of a magazine and says, I want to record a testimony. So it's a novel about this man's testimony who's, who, you know, appears on this magazine with the words, I tortured people. And it's listening to the complicity of some of the worst crimes in history of this regime and the commitment to speaking through them. I think Fernandez does that really carefully. And we understand how history works and unravels through the lens of this perpetrator. That sounds great. EJ, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes, it's the Twilight Zone by Nona Fernandez, translated by Natasha Wimmer. Thank you so much. We're speaking with E.J. Co. Her new book is called The Liberators. It's a novel. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Adam Schatz, author of The Rebels Clinic. What he's doing in Tunisia is actually, to my mind, like a broadened extension of this kind of exploded transference. And then it gets leavened by the idea of like, well, if you, and I love this moment in the book where he's, he recognizes that like integration, right? Psychological or psychiatric integration as a kind of like a metaphor for what's happening in the mind cannot happen if in fact social integration has also not happened. So can you Talk a little bit just to link this into the work he starts doing in Algeria and kind of how that starts to also ferment with what's happening politically in Algeria at the moment that he arrives. Sure. So Fanon's experiments, his psychiatric experiments, begin pretty much as soon as he arrives in Algeria, which is in late 1953, a year before the independence struggle breaks out. And, you know, it's important to recall that Fanon arrives in Algeria as essentially a colonial administrator. And this was not uncommon. It was not uncommon to send trained professionals from the Outremer, black civil servants like Fanon, to the new colonies, to places like Algeria, where they represented France. And in a sense, they provided examples of the success of integration and assimilation to French values. Fanon obviously ends up rebelling against that, but that is the mold into which he's put when he's there. I mean, he is a, he is a Frenchman in Algeria, and he's seen as a Frenchman when he first arrives. Well, what happens when he gets there is that, first of all, the psychiatric hospital is in a state of disrepair. And it's, in a sense, in the kind of desultory, depressing condition that so many psychiatric hospitals in France ended up during the Second World War. He saw patients who were tied to their beds, you know, men who were walking around listlessly, who hadn't shaved in days. He just, he saw people who were in acute distress, and he mobilized very quickly to respond to that. And Initially, and I think as a kind of um, experiment, he began to apply the same methods both to his female patients who were European women. They were what later became known as Pienoir, French, French women, and to the Muslim men under his care who were Algerians, Algerian Muslims. And he had roughly the same number. I think it was about 160 
European women and about 200 Algerian men. But what he found was that when he applied those, those methods, when he introduced viewings of films and theater and musical performances to the Blida-Joinville Hospital, the European women responded very favorably, but the Muslim men had very little interest in what he was doing. And Fanon's intern, Jacques Azoulay, always suspected that Fanon was prepared for that response and that um, he was just experimenting. It's hard to say. Fanon did say that you have to kind of know in your gut. What he decided to do then was to create a cafe more, a Moorish cafe, the kind of cafe where Muslim men in Algeria would meet and have coffee and, and smoke and talk. He invited the local mufti to make an appearance for the first time in the history of uh, Blidajouanville. He sponsored performances by Andalusian musicians, essentially created a kind of micro-society that had some, bore some resemblance to what these Muslim men knew outside, in either in the cities or in the duar, in the villages where they lived. And these men started to come alive again. And Fanon's argument in his essay on the practice of psychiatry among Muslim men was that uh, psychiatry had to move from this idea of the supremacy of Western values to a position of cultural relativism. And so he really was, I think, carrying on Tosquelles' work, but he was also carrying it on in a colonial society and realized that a different kind of practice was necessary. And he continues to do that when he gets to Tunisia as well. I'm curious to hear, I have two questions. And one is how his conception of himself changed in Algeria or his being from Martinique, which was no longer a colony of France, but still not quite an independent nation. And then going to Algeria and seeing colonization ongoing, if that changed anything about his self-conception or his own consciousness in, in terms of his experience of himself as a Black man or as a Frenchman, one. And then also, you know, you say in the in your introduction that the power of his writing resides in the tension between his work as a doctor and his obligation as a militant, between his commitment to healing and his belief in violence. And I thought that was such an interesting contrast. But I also wondered from reading your book if if the two ever meet in terms of his idea that violence can almost be a healing property, um, that in Algeria that he saw the way that the unification fighting against the French changed the way that Algerians treated each other. Without a doubt. And I I wouldn't want to suggest that there were only tensions between these two things. They obviously did meet, absolutely. And I think I, I think I argue that in the book, too. I certainly don't want to suggest that had Fanon been a pacifist, there would have been, he could have resolved the contradictions in his life. <laughs> but to take your, your first question, it's difficult to, I can only speculate on the changes in Fanon's consciousness because Fanon had a kind of disdain for people who write about themselves. He never, I mean, he kept journals at certain points in his, in his life. Much later when he was in Mali, he kept a journal. But he never wrote in an explicitly autobiographical mode. I believe that we can find autobiographical traces in his writing. And I, I try to make that argument in my book, particularly with um, when I'm writing about the central chapter in Black Skin, White Masks, The Lived Experience of the Black Men, which I think is a coded, it's a coded autobiography about his experiences in, in France. What's clear to me is that Fanon's understanding of the relationship between culture and politics is challenged once he gets to Algeria. And let me explain. In Black Skin, White Masks, Fanon is actually quite dismissive of the idea that an inherited culture can provide the engine, can provide support for an anti-colonial struggle. And this is the reason why he's so critical of the Negritude movement. Fanon had 
as a young man, been influenced by the poet Leopold Sedar Sangor, the Senegalese poet and statesman. He writes in Black Skin, White Masks that under the influence of Sangor's ideas about Black civilization and Black culture, he had, quote-unquote, waited in the irrational. But there's a break with that. And he comes to see the Songorian version of negritude with its vision of a kind of mystical Black essence as, in his words, the great Black mirage. And, you know, there's a sentence in Fanon that's often quoted, but quoted only partially, that the oppressed revolt when they can no longer breathe. But that sentence occurs in a passage where Fanon is actually critiquing negritude. He's writing about the Vietnamese struggle for liberation against French colonialism. And he says that the Vietnamese did not revolt on behalf of a culture. And that's a dig at negritude. They revolted because they could no longer breathe and took up arms. So Fanon is obviously very influenced by certain iterations of negritude, particularly the language of negritude that he finds in the poetry of his compatriot, Aimé Césaire, who was a mentor of his, who had campaigned for the departmentalization of Martinique, which Fanon at the time in 1946 supported, although he later has regrets about that. So he's influenced by this version of negritude, which emphasizes self-creation, self-invention, which is really an anti-essentialist version of negritude. But still, Fanon isn't sure about, one, he's not sure whether the search for an indigenous culture is what will fuel a rebellion. You know, his fear is that it's actually a kind of nostalgic quest and potentially a form of complacency. And, you know, Fanon was disappointed by the politics of the negritude movement. As I mentioned, he begins to develop these doubts about departmentalization, right? He thinks that it's actually a kind of capitulation to the colonial order. And he's also, I think, disappointed that in Martinique, and he visited Martinique briefly after the war and did some work there as a doctor, that in Martinique, there isn't a kind of culture of resistance to the French. The white mask is still on tight. And, you know, we have to remember that black skin, white masks is also a lacerating critique of the assimilation to white values that he finds among his own people, among the Martinicans. So he goes to Algeria, and within a year, this rebellion breaks out. And he is visiting various communities in Algeria, for example, in Kabylie, where he's observing possession ceremonies, where he's learning about native modes of care. He's learning about the way in which Algerians treat the mentally ill. He finds that they treat the mentally ill in a much more humane fashion than French medicine. So he's observing all these things among Algerians, and he's observing a, a people in resistance who are drawing strength from a culture that appears in Fanon's own imagination to have resisted the mask more effectively than the people he grew up with. And I, I don't mean to suggest that, that Fanon is consciously envious of the Algerians in comparison with his own people. But there's no question to me that Fanon begins to form a very deep attachment to the Algerians. He begins to identify with the Algerian struggle and to see it essentially as his own. This is not um, an unprecedented story. I mean, you know, we find this with the thousands of people who went to the Spanish Republic and identified fiercely with Spain and had ideas about the Spanish Revolution, which were to some extent imported. And, you know, Fanon, I think, is, is no different in this regard. Fanon comes to believe that independent Algeria is being fashioned in struggle. It's drawing upon this resistant indigenous culture, which has remained separate from France. You know, he, there's an essay of Fanon's where he's writing about how there's no real integration 
right? These two cultures have not really mixed. And this is, of course, a testament in part to the, the racism of colonial France, but it's also a testament to the strength of that culture, of the no that it had, of its defiance of a colonial country which sought to turn Algerian Muslims into French people, while at the same time denying them the same rights as other French people. It seems that this is actually one of those moments in which the, it's not a contradiction, but the nuances and the dense texture of Fanon's developing thought about this really starts to crystallize, at least like as I was reading your book. So there's, on the one hand, you have this pull away from a Sangorian. We might even say that that's like a desire for the pre-lapsarian moment, like this kind of desire to return back to something that we, if we uncover... The feeling of lost wholeness. Exactly. If we can kind of undo the thing that was done, then we'll uncover this golden culture that is the solution. And so he doesn't believe that. By the way, nor does he believe it right. in the Algerian case, because, you know, he's actually critical of projects based on authenticity in Algeria. I mean, he he imagines that in the course of revolution, Algeria is being, quote unquote, I mean, it's a loaded term, but it is being mm -hmm. modernized in a sense. It's it, Women are being emancipated in struggle. They will acquire a different status. Relations between fathers and sons right. are undergoing changes. You know, in a sense, Fanon sees revolution as a more effective form of modernization than a Western-imposed colonial modernization. But before you go on, I think I failed to answer the question about violence mm. oh, and healing. Yes. So yeah. maybe I should say something about that. I think you're entirely correct that Fanon's practice as a psychiatrist and his understanding of violence also merge. They're not merely intention. And uh, one could also say that of the Algerian nationalist movement itself, because one of the things that really stands out about the FLN during the war is that it created a vast healthcare service, kind of alternate healthcare service for Algerians who had been wounded. And in fact, when an American diplomat visited Algiers in, I think it was like 1960 or 61, he was astounded by the quality of care that Algerians were receiving from their own doctors in these makeshift uh, clinics. And it's true that even at the level of Fanon's thought about the colonial psyche, there is a compatibility, and at least an imagined compatibility, between healing and violence. Because um, Fanon was a believer in shock therapy. He used electroconvulsive therapy throughout his career. He would sometimes use it well over a dozen times with the same individual. He did so with François Tosquelles at Saint-Alban. He did it in Algeria and Tunis. And, you know, as the, the scholar Jean Calfa has argued, I think persuasively, for Fanon, violence is a kind of shock therapy for the colonized. The colonized person has been marinating in this feeling of despair, of passivity, of the inability to act upon history. And in taking up arms, or let's say vicariously, in being part of a movement which has taken up arms and is fighting back, that person begins to have a, a taste of power, to feel a sense of, uh, at least a fleeting sense of exuberance. And although I think Fanon's views about violence are much more textured and ambivalent than he's given credit for, there is to be sure in Fanon that initial moment when violence allows the colonized person to begin to feel human again. And I think it's worth noting that this is not as crazy a thought as it's portrayed to be. You know, this idea that violence, that fighting back, changes the state of things psychologically is not unique to Fanon. This is certainly how people felt when they took part in rebellions against the Nazi occupation. This is how people in the Warsaw Ghetto felt when they were fighting back against their Nazi persecutors. And yes, they also had very dark fantasies about what they were doing. I mean, Fanon writes that the, the colonized person is a 
is a persecuted person who dreams constantly of becoming the persecutor. That's one reason I think that the Holocaust survivor, uh, Jean Améry, a philosopher, a Belgian member of the resistance who was born Hans Mayer, was so moved by Fanon's writing on violence and said that, um, you know, for the colonized, for the person in a concentration camp, violence is an affirmation of human dignity. We shouldn't be surprised that the colonized person dreams of carrying out extreme forms of violence, just as we should not be shocked that a person in a concentration camp might favor the idea of poisoning the German water supply. I mean, these conditions give rise to what Fanon called an almost physiological brutality. And when Fanon writes about that, he's not endorsing it necessarily. I mean, I think that Fanon never wrote a systematic essay in which he explained which forms of violence he regarded as legitimate or progressive and which forms of violence he regarded as as a descent into the same kind of brutality that defined colonialism. This is an ambiguity that we have to work out for, for ourselves. But I don't think that it can be fairly argued that Fanon believed in any form of anti-colonial resistance to core. I think that's a very vulgar reading of Fanon. I mean, his sense of violence is both, anti-colonial violence is both inevitable and necessary, right, is also then kind of leavened by the idea that he feels it cannot merely descend into the chaos of pure violence, right? It has to have some kind of shape in order to, and this is kind of what I was getting to in that last question, is that Fanon seems to be very invested. I mean, this is literally the words that he uses, the creation of a new man. And that is something that cannot mean going back to the past. So it can't be purely nostalgic, but it also can't be it seems like purely futurist or fabulated. That's not exactly the right term, but you, you get kind of what I mean. So I'm curious, as we look towards what I remain fascinated by, and you're really wonderful, the whole book is wonderful, but the epilogue I particularly enjoyed, thinking about the afterlives of Fanon. I mean, obviously, we're going to skip his death for a brief minute, but kind of how Fanon and all of the nuance and texture that you bring to him and to his thought, how he gets taken up in, I think, unfortunately, very programmatic ways by the people that follow in his wake. Well, first, I'd like to comment on your point about the creation of, you know, what he calls a a new man, but which I believe he means a new humanity. A new collective. I mean, there's no question that Fanon's language, Fanon's language is very masculinist. And I, I do write at points in this book about, you know, his masculine biases, which can't be argued away. They were a part of him. But I think this idea of a new humanity or a new man, as he puts it, is tied up with his psychiatric ideas about what he calls disalienation. He, like many thinkers, I mean, we could talk about Hegel, we could talk about Rousseau, we could talk about Marx. He does have this vision of overcoming alienation and creating a new person who is freed of that alienation and who can, who can act upon history and transform the conditions that he or she has inherited. And uh, there is, I mean, this is the thing that I find so... You know, fascinating and riveting about Fanon's work. On the one hand, there is a very bleak and dramatic determinism to his writings. He has a very strong sense that, that history has made us who we are. You know, we have been determined by these, these oppressive structures, colonialism, racism, slavery, etc. And yet at the same time, Fanon is somehow and paradoxically an optimist. Fanon writes in the conclusion of Black Skin, White Masks, I am not the slave of the slavery that dehumanized mes pères. It means my fathers. He means my ancestors. I'm not the slave of the slavery that dehumanized my ancestors. I am my own foundation. Now, of course, <laughs> no one is their own foundation. But it's a very stirring formulation and there are parallels, I think, between the conclusion of Black Skin, White Masks and the conclusion of The Wretched of the Earth, which represents a more mature kind of anti-colonial phenomenon, but, you know, which also is this celebration of history's 
next chapter, this chapter beyond Europe. Let us leave Europe behind. Europe has done pretty well. It certainly has some achievements to be proud of, but we need to move on. We need to create something of our own. And, uh, you know, to some extent, that call to move beyond Europe and create, you know, a new humanity is an act of voluntarism. Fanon writes in Black Skin, White Masks that what really matters in history is the leap of invention. And he remains committed to that even after he has given us this um, anatomy of history's wounds. And that's why I say that Fanon's work revolves around this tension between the wound and the will. Now, as for these, the various Fanons who have been created after his death, I agree with you that, that many of them, not all of them, but many of them reflect what we might call a vulgar Fanonism. Not a, a particularly deep reading of the work, but um, a syncretic language that draws upon a highly selective reading of his work. But I think that this is true of so many great thinkers. I don't think it's unique to Fanon. I think it's probably encouraged by the fact that Fanon had such a, a short and dramatic life, a kind of epic life. He dies when he's 36 of leukemia in, of all places, Bethesda, Maryland, where he had arrived thanks to the Central Intelligence Agency. So, you know, Fanon's work lends itself. Fanon's work is both sophisticated, intricate, and subtle, and populist and, and vulgar. When I say vulgar, I don't say that in a dismissive way. I'm, I'm really just talking about the Vulgate. I mean, Fanon was writing essentially tracts. I mean, the Wretched of the Earth is meant to be used by revolutionary movements. Um, Fanon's secretary who typed his books, Marie-Jeanne Manuelon, whom I got to know in her last years, was amused that people were reading Fanon as a philosopher <laughs> in college because she said these were pamphlets, these were tracts, this was propaganda. But, you know, yes, it was. And yet Fanon was so brilliant and so incisive a thinker that he couldn't just write a tract. Or rather, his tracks inevitably have a richness and a density that propaganda by other writers just doesn't have. And so I don't think it's necessarily something to be regretted. I mean, uh, Fanon you know, was an important thinker to so many liberation movements in the 1960s. And there were some among them who read Fanon with more care than they were given credit for. One of them is the Black Panthers. You know, there's a cliche about the Panthers. There are so many cliches about the Panthers. One of the more misunderstood groups in American history is cliche that the reason that Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton and others read Fanon with such enthusiasm is that he celebrated violence and they too wanted to take up guns and shoot the pigs and so on. And that's true up to a point, of course. I mean, there was some identification with the essay on violence that begins The Wretched of the Earth. But, you know, another reason that the Panthers were so drawn to Fanon was that he had this critique of colonial medicine. That essay on colonialism and medicine in Fanon's book on Algeria, A Dying Colonialism, year five of the Algerian Revolution, it was called in French, that essay had a big impact, as Alondra Nelson has pointed out in her study of the healthcare programs of the Black Panthers, on the Panther Party. Because if you're Black in America, likely you're going to know something about medical malpractice and the way that racism permeates supposedly objective medicine. Remember, this had been an obsession of Fanon's from the time that he's practicing medicine in Lyon. He knows about French psychiatry. He knows its biases against Algerians. He first writes about it in the essay on the North African syndrome. When he's writing about North African laborers in France who suffer from this mysterious ailment that has no obvious physical cause, and Fanon points out that, well, you know, it's not simply an imaginary illness that they've come up with to avoid working. This is the trace of racism in their bodies, in their phenomenal body. Phenomenal body, of course, is a term that he gets from the phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And he continues that work when he gets to Algeria. And so the Panthers are reading Fanon on colonialism and medicine, and they're applying it to their critique 
of the healthcare profession. The doctors who work in that program are forced to read Fanon, which I think is a good thing. So while there are these, you know, wildly selective readings of Fanon, some of which are somewhat implausible, I think particularly the Afro-pessimist reading of Fanon, which essentially is a reading of Fanon that cuts Fanon off at black skin, white masks, and regards all of the rest of his work as an unfortunate deviation from his writing on blackness. So there are these, you know, more and less plausible readings of Fanon. But I think, you know, in general, the the spread of his of his influence, not just to political writing, but to filmmaking. I mean, the films of um, Usman Sembene, the great film of the Algerian Revolution by Ponte Corvo, the Battle of Algiers, to art making, to literature. Ngugi, the great Kenyan novelist Ngugi, remarked that the post-colonial African novel in its early years was essentially a series of footnotes about Fanon. The spread of that influence and the various applications in art and culture and politics, I think, is a testament to just how brilliantly Fanon's work has traveled. It's work that begins in these very specific places. It begins in the clinic in France. It begins in the homes of Algerian workers in Lyon. It begins in, you know, the Blidin-Joinville Psychiatric Hospital in Algeria and then ends up in, in Tunisia. So it begins in these very concrete situations, and yet it has this extraordinarily universal thrust that inspires so many people who connect the politics of mental health with the politics of collective liberation. To me, that's a rather inspiring story. Thank you so much, Adam, and an ongoing story. So I appreciate your book helping us learn about Fanon and also look to the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was Adam Schatz. His new book is called The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.